Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD 27-year veteran. I retired as a detective sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. Tonight, I have an unbelievable guest. Uh, he did 20 years on the NYPD, retired as a first-grade detective. But more than that, was one of the most knowledgeable organized crime detectives in the history of the department. He was also involved in a, a book called Friends of the Family, uh, and I'll let him talk about that, which uh, was instrumental in putting away mafia cops, Louis Ippolito and uh, Caracappa. And uh, without further ado, let me introduce Tommy Dades. Tommy Dades, how are you, buddy? How are you, Bill? <laughs> Doing good, man. I, I hope I didn't, uh, you know, pump you up a little bit too much, you know? Yeah, you did. I mean, I mean... It's hard to follow the guys you had on, Philly Grimaldi, uh, Patty Russo, Chief Animal, uh, Randy Jurgensen. You had some great guys on the show. Hey, I'll put you on the Wall of Fame, too, after the show's over, all right? Thank you. You don't mind if I show your book here? No, not at all. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, very proud of that book. Uh, David Fisher, who's a 25-time best-selling author, and Mike Vecchione, who was uh, the chief of the Rackets Bureau. We had the, uh, the fortunate opportunity to uh, have uh, people interested in hearing that story about, you know, Louis Eppolito and Steve Caracappa, which there are so many people involved in that case, you know. So I was very fortunate that they picked me to tell the story. But uh, it was a very interesting case and very uh, satisfactory, you know, a lot of satisfaction. Um Astrolite Productions just brought uh, bought the, the book, took the, like they own the rights to the book now, and uh, the talented Terrence William uh, Winters is uh, the screenplay writer, and they're trying to do like a continuing episodic series on the whole story involving everybody. So you you could be a rich man one day. Nah, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be a nice about time. You know, we, we have fans that uh, watch, listen to the show from all over the country, some from all over the world, and I'm sure they're going to love your Brooklyn accent because they're always commenting on Mark and, and I on New York accents, but I don't think they've heard Brooklyn, though, you know? <laughs> I've been told. So tell them where you grew up. Sunset Park, Brooklyn, 47th Street and 8th Avenue. I don't think anyone listening from uh, Ireland or from Italy or anything knows where that is, but tell, tell us about the neighborhood. 47th Street and 8th Avenue, uh, boy, the, I mean, any of the guys you speak to that I still talk to, I'm friends with, I got friends that I, you know, grew up with since I'm 13 years old, we still speak to each other to this day, uh, it was a diversified, you know, group of us, you know, uh, as far as, you know, black, white, Spanish, what, whatever, you know, um, all of us came from broken homes, uh, we're lucky we got a pair of sneakers once a year for Christmas, <laughs> We hung out in a bar called Flannery's on 47th and 8th. Uh, you were allowed that 15 years old, you were allowed to have a, a shot for a, a shot was a dollar and a beer was a quarter. <laughs> and on a Sunday, if you try to use the pay phone, there were three bookmakers there that would cut your hands off. So <laughs> but I had great times there. I, all, all of us, uh, anybody that came from 8th Avenue was just uh, was a special place to all of us. And uh, I had a great time there, and I'm glad I grew up there. 
So out of that neighborhood, you either became a mobster, a cop, or a fireman, right? Well, a lot of guys, a lot of guys went to Marine Corps. Um, there are a lot of guys that became cops. That avenue, it wasn't so much like the traditional organized crime. There was some, there was some bars on that avenue that I would put up against uh, any organized crime plays. You know, uh, walking into some of those bars was like walking into a Westies bar in Hell's Kitchen. You know, and if you didn't <laughs> know anybody, you had a problem. But uh, you know, a lot of guys became civil servants, firemen, cops. But a lot of guys went in the Marine Corps. Uh, a lot of us did good. I got a friend of mine that uh, he was a CO for 20 years. He did 20-something years in, in the military. Uh, he was deployed to uh, Iraq three times. He's my one of my dearest friends, Eddie Pickett. And uh, we, had, we had some great times up there. And, and the bar you used to hang out was owned by who? Was owned by Mr. Flannery. <laughs> oh, oh I, thought you, I thought you said uh, Sammy the Bull owned the bar. Oh, that was Tally's bar. That's we when we got a little older, we drifted off to 18th Avenue, 62nd Street, and uh-huh. that was Tally's bar. And uh, hey, would you buy a drink from this man? Oh yeah, hundred. <laughs> Sammy's, Sammy's a, I mean, people think I'm crazy, you know, maybe for saying it, but me and Sammy know each other a very long time, and uh, yeah. we have some great conversations. And I, I know him since I'm a kid. You know, I know him in every aspect of his life, and he knows me in every aspect of mine. At the end of the day, we're just two guys that are talking on the phone either about boxing or politics. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell, tell us a, a little bit about your police career. Where'd you start out? I, uh, after I got out of the academy, uh, I got sent to NSU 10, um, 7-0, 6-0, 6-2, And then uh, from there, I went to the first precinct for a while. Uh, I did a stint as an undercover in Brooklyn South Narcotics and then got transferred to uh, Manhattan South Narcotics, uh, where I worked for uh, the Honorable Chief William Ali. I liked Ali. Ali was a good man. He was a lieutenant then, uh, a great man, and had a great time in narcotics. I did another three and a half years there. Then I got transferred to the Bureau in Brooklyn, and I... I didn't know anything about what squad just sent me back to a precinct close to the home. <laughs> so I did time in the 6-6 squad, the 6-9 squad, and the majority of it in the 6-8 squad, totaling eight years in the Bureau. And then uh, I got transferred to the Intelligence Division. Um, and I didn't ask, though. I just got transferred there. Uh, and I got transferred into an organized crime unit where it was me, a lieutenant, a sergeant, and three detectives, and we worked in conjunction. We were deputized numerous times with the FBI, the DEA, and uh, between the, and the Brooklyn DA's office, the, Brook, the Eastern District of uh, New York Federal Courthouse. Uh, we had a, a, an amazing time, and it was just a group of guys that uh, didn't care what agency they worked for, just hardworking guys looking to work and have a good time and solve cases. Let's talk a little bit about, and I want to show the audience, uh, because some of these great mob stories of your uh, knowledge of organized crime. In 1991, I think, to 1993, there was something that was referred to as the war. Tell us a little bit about that. Colombo War. It was the second Colombo War, you know, in that family. And uh, that whole war basically was over uh, Carmine Persico uh, was the boss of the Colombo crime family. And... uh, 
the Honorable Rudy Giuliani, as uh, the head of the Southern District, used the RICO law for the first time and put him and a lot of the, you know, the, the bosses of the other families, under bosses, uh, the whole administration is a way of everybody in the family. There's Carmine right now. He just recently passed away. Um, and he left the reins in jail to Vic Arena um, to run the family as the acting boss until his son, Ali Boy, got out. And as Ali Boy was getting close to getting out on, a, I believe it was a eight-year heroin charge. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Um, four guys were sitting on Vic's house, and instead of, you know, he never reneged on giving the family back. They just felt it would be easier to get rid of him. And uh, he caught the move. He drove home. And, you know, the war started. But, uh, you know, he was basically in that life, you know, he was basically protecting himself and wasn't looking to hold nothing back. So now there were the Persico faction and the Arena faction. and. They, you know, people... And, and then what, were the arenas from Queens? The arenas were from Long, from Long Island. Long Island, okay. Uh, I happen to know some of his sons who, you know, one of them was a civilian, you know, sweetheart of a guy. Uh, you know, whatever life that their father chose, their father chose, but uh, he didn't start the war. The Persico side did. And... Uh, then you ended up with two over two years of, I think, 13 homicides, several people wounded, some innocent people. Uh, somebody in the Genovese family actually got killed that wasn't supposed to be somewhere, so that's why they let it go. Uh, there were innocent bystanders killed. This kid, Mateo Speranza, 17 years old. Uh, very sad story. Worked in Juana Bagels. And uh, they they executed this poor kid and uh, his family. God, I don't know how they lived through that. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know how they've ever been the same. I actually, uh, my team was actually the one that took the door down to arrest uh, one of the shooters. It was a father and son team that actually killed them. You know, well, why did they kill him? Was it uh, mistaken they, identity? Or? It was a shooting the night before of this guy, Bobo Malpiso, who was a captain. And uh, Bobo's son got shot out in Staten Island by uh, a person goes to sleep. Bobo was on the, the arena faction. And uh, somebody, they believed this, they believed that this guy, BF, Frank Guerrera, and Anthony Ferrara, who were associates at the time in the Persico faction, uh, may have shot. Um, May have shot, or they were just looking to get anybody that was around that morning in retaliation on the Persico side. And a father and son team got dispatched to a bagel store that Ferrara and Guerrero owned. This kid, Mateo Speranza, I believe he was 17 years old at the time, just working the counter. Guy walked in, he, he ends up getting a can of whatever he put on the counter. He leaves it there. He never took a collar, so we didn't have his fingerprints. And uh, he just executes, shoots him, and kills a kid. We were working day, a day tour early in the morning. And uh, eventually, I mean, we come up with a lot of other things, you know, to lock him up. But that fingerprint on that can of soda was his 
you know, sealed his fate. And he and they, the father and son both ended up cooperating with the government. Wow. And then they brought in this kid, uh, Johnny uh, Papa, right? Johnny Papa, Johnny Papa wanted to emulate his father. His father was Ger Gerard Papa. His father and Sammy and uh, Jimmy Emma and a bunch of other guys ran in a, in a gang back in the 60s and 70s called uh, the Rampers. And it was a pretty rough gang, and a lot of them strayed off into organized crime from that gang, you know. And Sammy ended up becoming the boss of that gang, but Jerry was the boss first. John, that means that before dishonor, an Italian that was taking the day that we locked, the next day that we locked him up and he was in the federal courthouse. Um, he was a homicidal maniac, and Jerry, his father, and his father ended up getting killed in 1980 in Villa 66, which the Chin, Vincent the Chin Gigante, actually ordered, and because uh, he was out of control, and he was a made guy in the Genovese family. John wanted to emulate his father. He wanted to be a made man in the worst way. And he ended up, he was a big drug dealer. And he would kill you in a blink of an eye. And uh, he answered to uh, uh, a crew that was run by a guy named Big Anthony Russo, um, who was a street boss and a very tough, tough guy uh, on 13th Avenue. And he was aligned with Alley Boy Persigo. That's Anthony. And uh, Anthony, he looks he looks like a scary guy, Anthony. Very scary guy. <laughs> <laughs> very scary guy. But the heart of but but a heart of but heart of a lion, you know. <laughs> um, he uh, John Papa answered to him, and uh, I had gotten word from two very reliable informants that he was sitting on my house. Because everywhere he would go, me and this FBI agent, Matt Tormey, would pop up. We were working a case on him. He ended up, well, that's Matt Tormey, me hugging him. That's my lieutenant, Kevin O'Brien, and uh, my dear friend and partner, James Hawkins, in front of the courthouse after they convicted John. If you guys didn't have shields in your pocket, you could be uh, wise guys, too. <laughs> Matt, Matt was an amazing agent, uh, and we had a great time. It was a great case that we worked. Uh, the, when we find out he's sitting on me, uh, my neighbor sees this red car and I'm not putting two and two together. I just had moved out, you know, to Staten Island, um, to the boondocks and, you know, I, the neighbor says this red car is sitting there watching, watching and two informants, uh, tell me John Pop is trying to kill you. And, uh, at the same time, I'm getting Christmas cards from MDC in Brooklyn with someone uh, pointing a machine gun at my then wife, me, and my two children. That, could, that couldn't make you feel too good, right? It was like, you know, a little too personal when it involved my kids. You know, yeah. me, separate story, involved my two children. You know, it's uh, you're crossing a line and a boundary. And I always, I always tried to be respectful to the families of the people that we arrested, you know, and there were certain things I was taught by some veteran cops and veteran agents not to do, you know, out of respect for the families. And it went a long way. Um, but uh, John, they, I find out later on, I mean, they tell me that he's looking to kill me. He, his mindset at the time, what he tells them is that uh, if he kills me, the case that we have on him will go away. He also, they also tell me he's looking to kill Sammy. 
Sammy Gravano. Right. So Sammy was out in Arizona at the time. And uh, I called Sammy and I called the two agents that, you know, locked Sammy up that we all still speak, the four of us. Manager Clark on Frank Spiro, two old timers that, you know, they don't make them like that anymore. And uh, told him, you know, John's looking to John's looking to kill you and me. And Sammy writes me a letter. At least I'm in good company on the same hit list, you know. <laughs> so we go. We, me and Matt, uh, we indict him on four murders. We knew about five, and we suspected him in quite a few more. And uh, he ends up killing, and he was with Anthony Russo, uh, BF Frank Guerrera, uh, Eric Curcio. John Sparacino. Now, Eric Kershaw and John Sparacino, John Papa killed them both um, on a hit to kill Joey Scopo, who was the underboss of, that's Greg Scarpa. That's Greg Scarpa. Greg, okay. yeah, Greg, Greg was a, a, a very strong force on the Persico faction. Um, Joey Scopo was the underboss on the uh, arena faction and very close to John Gotti. And they figured if they killed him, they'd really cut a big, power source uh -huh. and uh john pop is the one that i believe actually put the fatal bullets into him at 18 years old wow and uh when me and matt finally get the indictments on him now that we know he's looking to kill me <laughs> uh we don't want to we don't want him to know he's looking for us so uh we're not going to his house we're staying away we're just trying to get a get some kind of a lead on where he's going to be and we find out he's going to be in the bridal party of a guy who he who john, john sparacino's brother the guy he killed but john but the brother don't know it so they're going to saint anne's church in stand down to a bridal rehearsal and me and matt find out i forget how matt did it but it was very ingenious how we found out where when and who was going to be in it and uh we're sitting in a, you know, just a, an unmarked, you know, SUV, whatever, uh -huh. nothing, nothing that you would suspect. Everybody's in there. Maybe not in 10 more minutes, we're going to leave. And then all of a sudden, Papa's car, van, uh, SUV pulls up. Him and his girlfriend get out of the car, and his girlfriend's behind him. He's walking in front of her. And I told Matt, let him just get on the stairs. So we got him on the stairs. And we both jump out of the car. And we both got our guns out, and I yelled my name to him so he knows it's me, not just, please don't move. It's, it's Tommy Dage, John, don't move, you know? And he looks at me, and he bends down on one knee, and he just goes, yeah, right. And he's pulling out a gun. seemed like it was forever. It was a 9-millimeter Taurus with 15 in the clip, one in the chamber, safety off. And he swings the – and I yelled to Matt, gun. And he swings the door of the church open. And I got my gun, I'm maybe seven feet behind him, and I got my gun at his head. And when I see the doors open at seven pounds of pressure, I was at about three and a half. Yeah. And I don't shoot. We run into the church after him. I hear the gun. I don't see it. I hear it hit the tile floor in the church down the aisle, and I hear it go. I heard it go right. And I yell to Matt, loose gun right at the pews. And I tackle him. And I don't, there's bad guys there. So basically, I got my foot on his back and I put everybody to their knees and uh, cuff him up. 
and drag them out of there. Other agents and teams come. Matt stays behind, and they all want to know who the crazy detective was. We want his badge number. <laughs> Matt told him the crazy detective just locked up the guy that killed your brother. That's unbelievable, right? They That's came to the trial. The mother and brother came to the trial every day. He ended up getting two life sentences plus 65 years. And uh, when I, Anthony Russo, uh, in 2011, um, he ended up cooperating with the government. And uh, me and Matt had actually arrested him, you know, and he did some time on our arrest. And then he got arrested again. And this was involved in the Joey Scopo murder. Wow. And uh, Tommy, let me just shout out to some of our uh, live chatters here. Twelve Step Woman, thank you so much for the four ninety nine super chat. Blondie, Melody McAtee, MC's Audio, Robbie Taylor, Cat in the Hat, Elise D, Billy Ryan, Investigative Group, uh, Blondie ten twenty five, Laura Rudolph. Uh, who else we got here? Of course, the Pranzos, Lieutenant, the Great Lieutenant Pranzo from uh, the Harlem Raiders from back in the day. He also had a hit put on him by the Colombo crime family. They never got they never got him though, right? He's still out there. Uh Hoppy Hoppy, Christopher Strom. Good to see you, buddy. Tell him I said hello. Tommy says hello to you. Kathy Pulliam, Janine Goodwin. Uh who else we got here? Deb Hart, Glenda Pospisil, Bugsy Cruiser, thank you for the two dollar super chat. Brandon Shelton, Joe Reek, Inspector Joe Reek, uh, Joan Guerrero. Bob Geis, retired detective Bob Geis, great detective. Uh, well, that's about it. I hope I didn't miss anybody. Tommy, go back to, uh, to what you do best. Tell these stories. They're great. <laughs> so uh, Anthony Russo, he cooperated finally. He did like 19 years in prison total. And uh, Anthony was a force to be reckoned with. Um, we hated each other on the street. But uh, after he cooperated, you know, we put our differences aside, and we, we ended up becoming good friends. He is told he me, out now? Oh, yeah, he's out. He's out working hard. He's a good earner, right? He's a good, he's a good earner in what he could do right now legitimately. Um, he, uh, he told me the true story that uh, he gets a phone call that uh, Papa admits that he's looking at, that he's sitting on my house, and uh, – he goes and he meets Papa with another guy or two, and he tells him, you know, are you at not that he loved me. It wasn't for the love of me. It was the heat that would have got brought down on him. He goes, what are you, nuts? And he's like, you know, what are, what are you sitting on him for? And he really, he really didn't have anything to make sense to say, but he admitted that he was. And uh, Anthony basically told him, you know, you, 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 you kill him, you're going to find a piece of you in every borough in, in, in New York. And Anthony told me that uh, if we had not locked him up when we did, that they were already conspiring to kill him. And we would have probably, another month would have went by. We, you know, that would have been the end of John Pop. Because so, he, he, he wasn't a made guy. He was an enforcer. He, was, he wanted to be a made guy. So he was dealing a lot of drugs, trying to be a good earner. And he definitely, I mean, he could fight his way out of a paper bag, but... With a gun, he'd shoot you. No, no ifs, signs of butts, stone cold killer. He had black eyes. But he stood four foot nothing. You know what I mean? And not that that means anything, but, right. you know, he wasn't a fist fighter. He just 
would shoot you in two seconds. And he killed all his friends. That's that's a sick part of it. Everybody he was killing was his friends because they who took credit. He get mad at you and kill you if you took credit for a murder that he was involved in, and you were taking the limelight away from him. And he just didn't shut up. He told the whole world everything he did. You know, when I was in the two three squad, there was this guy out on the street. His name was Pistol Pete, and Pistol Pete was five foot two, one twenty. But everyone was terrified of him. Oh yeah, I mean your size means nothing. He was a shooter. He was a, he shot like seven or eight people, and he might shoot you in the legs so he wouldn't get charged with attempted murder. He shot one guy nine times in the legs, you know. But when he walked up Lexington Avenue, it was like the guy on uh, the wire, Omar, when he walked up the street, people just started running, you know. <laughs> he actually, we actually had John Papa's best friend who was murdered by another group of Colombo guys, um, he called the mother up and he blamed somebody else for killing, he blamed this other individual for killing her son and laughs on the phone and admits that he kills this one guy, Eric Curcio, to the mother. And that Eric Curcio did not kill her son and uh, the mother testified against him at the trial. Well, the big thing about uh, John Papa, he, he was six years old when his father, who was an enforcer, was whacked, right? And his father, also uh, Ger- Gerard Papa or Jerry Papa, yeah. he, did, he did 16 murders himself because I saw they, that you exceptionally he, cleared them. He seed 16 murders as soon as he got killed. And I seed his murder when they indicted the chin. The actual shooter, I won't even name him, the actual shooter, I believe is still alive and nobody ever was able to put handcuffs on him. But the chin, uh, Sammy testified at the chin's trial and Sammy and uh, Papa were very close. And uh, the chin ordered his death. He was for, the, for the folks out there, uh, he's to- referring to um, the chin gigante who um, for years played uh, like he was psychotic in his cell, right? Locked him up. He was naked in the shower with an umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> he must have had fun uh, playing that part, you know? Well, what's the sense if you can't enjoy everything that they're enjoying? He walked around like he, you know, God forbid, had dementia or something. You know what I'm saying? And most of the time. But uh, he was very, very normal. I mean, and, and his his brother was a priest, priest. In, the, in the Bronx and swore by him. 100%. Yeah, that's the truth. But then I think later in the brother, the priest, he wound up getting arrested years later. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, you aren't going against a priest, man. I think you no. think you. I think you get struck down or something. <laughs> <laughs> so talk more about the war. How was the war resolved? The war eventually was resolved where, you know, it was everybody was, you know, there were people on the arena faction, people on the personal faction that were not paying each other money. So there was no money being earned. And, of course, that's the bottom line of the root of organized crime is, is, is money. You know, no matter what it is, that's what it's all about. It's about money. So basically what happened was Alley Boy, um, you know, Vic gets life in prison. Um, uh, a lot of guys get killed. You know, Nikki Black gets killed. Uh, Joey Scopo gets killed. There's some heavy hitters that get killed. Guy Pasquale Amato gets life. Uh, and what happens is 
Alley Boy gets out. He he got charged with some of the war crimes, and he beats the case. He gets out, and they kind of come to some kind of some kind of a resolution, you know, where they're gonna they're gonna make some kind of a truce. So Alley Boy becomes the boss as the way they wanted it, while Bill Cotolo becomes the underboss, who was a big arena loyalist. And Billy and Alley Boy were close at one time, but then they were looking to kill each other. So now they're friends. And uh, Alley Boy, uh, I mean, you could see, I locked up Billy. I was involved in, he got locked up once by the feds where he beat the case. He was facing life. I locked him up on two separate occasions. They were meatball pinches. But uh, Billy, I, uh, he was very respectful guy you know he knew his role he knew our role he was very respectful to us and uh alley boy just made him relax and like he brought him a brass a brass uh, popcorn machine for christmas in his house and <laughs> i mean he got him to the point where he didn't even have a driver anymore so what happens to billy is uh i was working with two agents uh jimmy destefano and gary pontecorvo uh, Gary ended up the head of JTTF for a long time and two, two amazing agents. Um, we, there's, Gary's writing up a wiretap on several informants that we all have to bug a place. And the word is, you know, what happens is the FBI's got a tail on Billy and, uh, he pulls into a garage and, uh, they don't just stop, so they drive around the block, and his car is gone. They don't know where he went. So there's guys waiting for him at the club, where he had the club on 63rd and 11th, and then there's a bunch of other guys waiting to get manicures and haircuts at Bruno's, which we were looking to bug. And Gary's sitting on a beach, drawing up the affidavits to try <laughs> to bug this place. And what happens is now the car comes back. They end up dropping Billy off on 92nd Street and Shore Road. And what had happened, Anthony Russo told me, Billy had met, Ali was going to go do about 18 months on a gun charge from a boat in Florida. And Billy joking around says, well, I'll be the boss. As soon as he walked away, he basically said, he's gone. He's dead. <laughs> and two days later, they make it like he's meeting Alley Boy on 17th Avenue and like 76th Street at this guy Dino Saracino's house. And Dino Saracino's one of the guys involved in the Ralph Dole's murder. And, Ralph, Ralph Dole's it was an like NYPD cop. Yes. Yeah, right. he was a housing cop. Now, tell, tell us why that happened. Why that happened? Because yeah. he married a girl named Kim Cano who was married at one time to a guy named Joe Waverly. Joe Waverly is a heavy Colombo guy, very capable, has done a lot of homicides, been shot a couple of times. And uh, he married her and had a baby with her. And uh, it was basically a racial thing because uh, Ralph Doles was Mexican. And he felt it was disrespectful to him that his ex-wife was having a baby with this individual. And uh, they executed this poor guy after doing a 4 to 12. And uh, they got away. They beat the murder case. 
they actually beat that murder case wow. in federal court. You know, and they did, they didn't make an arrest for years either, right? No, it was a long time coming. I mean, Tony and Gotti and Dougie Hopkins and you know everybody and their mother worked on that case real hard. But uh, it's a whole long story on how they lead up to grabbing the guys that actually did it. But uh, Dino Saracino was part of it, and uh, Dino uh, and Tommy Gioli was in front of uh, Dino's house, and Billy thinks Alley Boy's downstairs to have a meeting. As soon as he walks down the stairs, Dino Calabro's down there, who's another Colombo captain, or maybe he was a soldier at the time, and killing Billy gave him the bump up. Billy, from what I understand, just sees him, lifts up his arm, they shoot him, they kill him, and they bury him in Farmingdale, Long Island. Without a body, um, we attack that case. And we indict Jackie DeRoss, who took over Billy's position as underboss, and Ali Boy Persigal, and they got convicted in the Eastern District, denied by the Second Circuit. Uh, and you know the federal government did a great job prosecuting them. They got life in prison, and we didn't have a body at the time. Body was eventually recovered in Farmingdale, Long Island, in a shallow grave. And we had gotten his dental records back then. He had beautiful veneer teeth, Billy. <laughs> and uh, we went to his, I think his dentist was on Park Avenue, and we got his dental records, and that's what they matched the two to identify him. Wow. The, the killing of uh, Ralph Dahls, I mean, that goes against all mob rules, doesn't it? To kill a cop? Uh, a hundred, I mean, 150%. On the way he did it, it goes against all rules. It, you know, there's circumstances, uh, there's other circumstances where if you're, you know, I'm going to, it's it's something for people to think about, even guys who are on a job today. And I never forgot what, what Sammy told me. You know, 30-something years ago, Sammy told me, don't be so lax when you're pulling over a wise guy. Because most guys feel that just what you said. And he goes, you don't know what they just did. You don't know what's in the back of that trunk. They, you, and, and I have circumstances where guys just did homicides, got pulled over by a radio car in a different division of where it happened and don't find out till right after and the car's gone. Right, right. So basically, Sammy always said, just be careful, you know, be on guard, you know, as far as that. Because when they killed Paul Castellano, that was a do or die mission. And if the FBI was there, if the NYPD was there, you know, those two guys, Bellotti and Castellano, were going. Because the biggest question I had in my head was, how didn't they know any of all these guys weren't being sat on by someone? They didn't know. Right, right. If anybody jumped out to try to intervene in this, it was either they were going to die or the cops were going to die. So in a situation like that, it isn't off the record. But in a situation, what Joe Waverly did to Ralph Doles, yeah. Or what John Papa was doing to me, yeah. That's something that you don't do, you know? You know, like what you were talking about, you learned day one as a cop that there's no such thing as a routine car stop. No, there isn't. And there's no honor amongst thieves. No, shit can happen. Duty Ron, thank you so much for the $10 Super Chat. Ryan Investigative Group, Bill Ryan. Detective Bill Ryan, thank you so much for the $5. And this is fascinating. This is our guest, Tommy Dades. He retired as a first-grade detective 
out, actually out of the six eights. No, out of Intel. Intel. Then Intel. And, and then he uh, actually went to work for the Brooklyn DA's office for five years after he retired. The famous Joe Ponzi. <laughs> with the famous Joe Ponzi. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about, too, was Tommy Dades gave a lot back uh, to the community. And I'll show you how he did it. There he is in his second career. He was, I believe he was a four-time Golden Glover, right, Tommy? Is that correct? No, not me. We won. We won about 12 Golden Gloves. But you trained kids in the I, Park, Park yeah, Hill? We trained kids that ended up the light heavyweight championship of the world at a Park Hill boxing gym under the PAL with Patty Russo, who ran it. Um, I was on the boxing team for a short time, and uh, uh, Dave Sieve raised a lot of money. Uh, the coach, he's a lieutenant. Um, Patty Russo was a sergeant. Patty was on the team for a short time. Uh, they gave me a job under Patty with Gary Stark, the famous trainer at a Park Hill boxing gym. I, you know, uh, we trained some great guys out of there, great amateurs. I was there five years. And then I went on to a couple other people with uh, UL Judas, Ab Judas' father, training guys. Won a lot of Golden Gloves. Uh, we won some great fights. I turned a pro trainer for a short period of time. Me, my amateur career, I had about 60 fights. Uh, nothing, nothing to brag about. I, I, I do a good beating is what I could say. Did, did, did you ever, did you ever say, cut him, Mick? Cut, <laughs> cut, cut me, Mick. I was saying, cut me, you know, but, uh, no, I had a great time in boxing, you know, and, uh, Park Hill still exists to this day and it's a great gym, a great program. And, uh, Patty Russo, Dave Sieve, Gary Starks, uh, Patty Bastiano, uh, a lot of all those guys, they, uh, put their heart and soul into it, you know, and boxing, amateur boxing is a great, uh, it's a fantastic avenue to keep kids in the city neighborhoods, uh, you know, busy, you know, guys are hungry. Uh, we, we being in the Golden Gloves in Madison Square Garden, which don't exist anymore, um, and winning those gloves, you know, are like the greatest feeling in the world. That's, that. that's, you know, I am so enamored by what uh, Pat Russo and all you guys have done for the kids in the inner city with these boxing programs because you can't say enough about it. It keeps the kids off the street. And even and even if they never do anything in boxing, it helps them do things in life. You, you know? know what? It's discipline. Uh, it gives you confidence because when you have the confidence, you've got nothing to prove, you know, when you're out in the street. Um, it's, uh, it's healthy. keeps you away from bad habits. And it also showed, you know what it did? I still speak to a lot of these kids today, and I love them to death. Uh, it just shows that, you know, cops, you know, like me or, or correction officers, you know, bring put in a minority neighborhood that we, we loved. I mean, I got pictures of me with Marcus Brown, who was the light heavyweight, was the light heavyweight champion of the world, with Mayor Dinkins, Governor Pataki, up at the Harlem PAL. We took them everywhere, football dinners. Uh, my friend uh, Eric Stangerby, who was a DA agent, his wife Allison was always runs the New York Giants. Was always kind enough to give us tickets for all the kids from Park Hill to come down to these dinners. So there was so we got so much gratification out of just seeing the smile on their faces, and uh, you know, especially when you're training a kid and he's winning these fights, and you know, he wins his Golden Glove. Like you know, it's the best feeling in the world. You know. 
And that, that's a boxing glove you're wearing around your neck. Yes, there, right? it's a golden glove that was given to me by Gary Starks Christmas of 2006. Uh, and it's a, it's a replica of the real Daily News golden gloves that you win. And uh, I'll treasure this forever. That's fantastic. You know, you want to want to play a little uh, mob a game of mob vernacular. Let's could go. We, could we could we stump? All right, I'm gonna I'm do the first one. If anyone from our live chat wants to run some mob vernacular by Tommy, we'll try to stump him. All right, what does it mean to get straightened out? It means to become a made member from an associate to a, a member, an official member of an organized crime family. That was an easy one for you, man. That was that was like a ten point question. <laughs> All right, how about um, a, a cuisine? <laughs> that I mean, back when I grew up in the eighties, you 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 know, you every two feet you walked on Eighty Sixth Street, you bumped over one. So, I mean, it's just somebody that uh, back then that. Uh, I don't know, washed his car every Friday and Saturday, had slipped back hair, uh, Kiana dress pants, Kiana, uh, seamless dress pants, Kiana shirts, patent leather shoes, and uh, Saturday Night Fever. There you go. <laughs> you know, I used to have three detectives that worked for me in the homicide squad, and they were all Italian. And when they went out in the car, I used to call them the cuisine auto because they were always looking to go to a different restaurant every night. So we named them the Cuisine Auto. I don't think they really appreciated it, but that's what we called them, you know? Spinning sparkling ball on the rearview mirror. <laughs> What's, oh, how about Guma? What's a Guma? It's somebody uh, who, uh, if you're married, and uh, you know that doesn't necessarily have to go for a gangster either, but having somebody that's almost up to par with your wife that you'd see on a Friday night and Saturday <laughs> night is reserved for your wife. Well, you know, it's like uh, in Goodfellas. What did they say? Uh, Saturday night was date night with the Guma. Was that, was you know, that right? Friday night. I forget which night was the better night. I think Saturday the wife got. I think Friday night the Guma. Friday night was the Guma. <laughs> <laughs> How about we always well, hear Omerta? That is the code of silence that, uh, you know, you don't talk. You keep everything to yourself, and that's part of the rules of uh, La Cosa Nostra. But yet, everybody talks. Um, Depends how high the price is, right? I, I mean, not everybody did, and the people, some people who did, you know, and if you really hear why, I mean, listen, it's against the rules, period, you know. But, like, cab drivers ain't the same. You know, uh, ball plays ain't the same. The whole world has changed. Organized, traditional organized crime ain't the same. How about the books? The books is when they opened them in 1957. They were closed until 1957. They opened up and started making guys again. If the books are closed, you can't get straightened out. <laughs> I love mob lingo, you know. And then, Oh, the other one. He's a friend of mine. No, he's a friend of ours. <laughs> well, if you're if if you introduce somebody and say he's a friend of mine, that means you're an associate. If he's a friend of ours, that means he's a made guy. And you really need a third party to introduce. If there's three guys and one guy is two two made guys know each other, and a third guy walks over and he only knows one of them, and the other guy knows they're both made. He's got to introduce other guys. Got to introduce that guy to the other third guy and say, 
he's a Mega Nostra. He's with us, you know. Oh, okay. He's a he's a, a May guy. You got to be introduced by another May guy in order to acknowledge that. You can't just walk over to say and say to somebody, you know, I'm a friend of yours. I'm a friend of ours. Right, right, exactly. And how about the unwritten rules, like uh, a soldier would never disrespect a captain, right? He can. Uh, wonder- it's happened. Anthony Russo's done it. Sammy's done it. It's happened. And I mean, uh, you know, depending the circumstances and then either, you know, I mean, depending on the insult and what it was really all about, it was never a, it was never an insult for cause for death, you know, just like where Anthony's captain would tell him you're, you know, you're out of your mind. Like what's the matter with you? You're crazy. Emmy at a certain point, you know, he had some, he had some things on his mind and he couldn't hold them back. You know, I know some of those stories, but as far as like, doing anything to a captain or, or anything like that. Now that could be a cause for a very uh, unfortunate, fortunate future. <laughs> you know, the other thing is a lot of people that aren't in the law enforcement business are somewhat horrified when they see how the federal government will flip someone, say like Sammy the Bull, who has, I don't know how many murders under his belt, over 20, right? 19. 19, and, and, they, and they cut a deal and he actually goes free but he's like an invaluable witness. That was something you, you, you start. The only thing I don't agree with, you know, uh, that's just my opinion. If you've killed, if you killed a cop or an agent, I don't care what you have to give up on the table. I'm not going to, you know, bad mouth anybody, but you know, I've seen people get cooperation deals who've, who've killed law enforcement officers. Uh, to me, that's, you know, that's like, you know, just a boundary you don't go with. Right. But you realize in law enforcement how important cooperating witnesses are. I mean, the damage that Sammy did, the education to this day that he gives to people on things. Yeah, he killed 19 people, but he killed 19 people that knew. In Sammy's world, he, you know, he was, he was in the military. He got an honorable discharge. He was a street guy his whole life. He goes into that life. He believes that life so much. It's like he's in the Marine Corps or, you know what I mean? So when he's killing somebody, those people that he's killing, they all know the consequences of breaking a rule or the possibilities because they've all killed people themselves. What Sammy, the value that Sammy brought to the U.S. government, I mean, for what I believe is he's responsible for putting away 38 high-level members of organized crime who probably killed, you know, times that by even five. How many people did they kill? You know what I mean? Right, right. So cooperating witnesses without them nowadays, it's very hard. Not that you just take their word for it. You want to corroborate their information. But they're very informants, just like informants. I mean, how many times have had guys that didn't testify that have committed, you know, minor bullshit things, you know, and – uh you got a friend in the DA's office. Look, this guy's working with us. He's giving us this. He's giving us that. And if there was nobody that got hurt, you know, you wipe it clean. You give the guy a pass. This is at a completely different level. You know, there's WITSEC units set up. U.S. Marshals are involved in this. And me personally, working with the government, I, I totally agree with it. You know, is the Italian mafia now in New York City uh, as powerful as they once were? Or- a reservation in a restaurant. Is that right? <laughs> That's my opinion. 
it the, seems like the, the, the I'm sorry, it seems like the Russians are much more powerful now. You know what? There's you don't really hear about a lot of you know this technology today, and I'm sure everybody knows that cameras are everywhere. You know, you're not gonna be able to kill somebody and do things like you used to. I mean, the homicide rate with organized crime, it, 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 I mean, back in the days in the 80s and 90s, even the early 2000s, I mean, you hear the stories, you think you were in a good neighborhood of Bensonhurst to Bay Ridge. It was a war zone. You just didn't know about it. It wasn't right. always out there. They were killing guys in places and you'd never find the body. You know what I mean? The bird sanctuary that Tommy Karate had in Staten Island, they heard him say, I'm Samsonite in people. He was cutting the bodies up, wrapping them in plastic, walking out of the buildings with Samsonite suitcases. <laughs> One of the guys that cooperate tells a story that was with Tommy Karate. They're walking into the bird sanctuary with a body in the, be- in the Samsonite, and two other guys from another family are walking out. You, you know what I mean? It was crazy. But today... I mean, I don't know what their racket is today. I don't know what they use. I mean, it used to be, it used to be extortion. It used to be shaking people down. It used to be the numbers. It used to be drugs, the unions, the you know, the carting companies. That you know, you, I mean, you name it. They had drywall. You you name it, excavation. They had it. I don't know how much there is, but there's not a social club. There's a couple that are popping up in different places again. The guys that got them are like the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. But uh, what from what it used to be, they elected presidents. I mean, you know, that's power. Right, exactly. Power, I mean, you know, I don't know what they're doing. So I, I really don't think you can even compare what organized crime used to be. And don't forget, the guys back then grew up hard. A lot of these guys that are involved in organized crime today grew up soft. And that has a lot to do with, you know, what kind of organization you're going to have. Right. One of our um, live chatters wanted to know if you know about the uh, Bruno or the Scarfo crime family in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, Nikki Scarfo, uh, you know, ran Atlantic City. Philly and Nettie, I used to do surveillance and hit, that was his uh, nephew. He became the underboss of the Scarfo family. And uh, Bruno, they killed him. There's a there's a shot that's crazy where they they kill him and he's leaning back with his mouth wide open. Nikki Scarfo takes over the family, and Philly and Eddie and Sammy and Philly and Eddie, Sammy and Scarfo were very very close. There's a lot of stories that Sammy shared with me about things that went on with them. Uh, Scarfo was totally a fearless, ruthless guy. Philly and Eddie, I've never met him, but if you heard him talk, he's a very intelligent guy. Um, and uh, they ran Atlantic City. So if, you, if they ran all the unions to do with the linen, you know, liquor, any deliveries. So if they didn't get what they wanted, all they had to do was make one phone call. They'd shut everything down. Atlantic City would lose a fortune. You know what I mean? And uh, they ran they ran it with, a, with an iron fist. Well, they must have went crazy in uh, when Giuliani took over when he got rid of the Fulton Fish Market. That was out of the Javits Center. Remember that? I um I worked for the. I have three generations of family that worked for the Daily News, and I drove the Daily. I drove a Daily News truck in the delivery department, newspaper mailers delivery union from seventeen to twenty one, right before I went in the academy, 
And I can't even tell you. I that that's why I was taking civil service tests back then. They made good money there. Yeah, I can't tell you what was going on down there. They called them the white shoe mob, and I still have a big, big, like ten-page article that was written about what went on in newspaper business till the government took over and have oversight over how the union is run there. Well, I remember uh, in the Javits Center, they would have the boat show, and someone would steal a hundred and fifty thousand dollar engine out of a million dollar boat, and no one saw nothing. You know, no one saw, <laughs> no one saw a thing. It was probably being dumped off to somebody uh, in, in Millionaire's Row in Florida, you know? No, because they, they fired every single person. that You could have been an honest guy in the Javits Center, but they fired every single person that worked there. Well, don't forget then you had the Westies that were all involved with all of that stuff too. And then you had the Westies that hook up with, with the Gemini crew from the Gemini Lounge. And I think between both crews, they probably did 300, 300 homicides. You know, on Fountain Avenue, they were dumping bodies there that were never found. I'm telling you, at least three. Frank Pagola, Kenny McCabe, uh, Ron Cadeau, uh, Joe Coffey, those were the guys. Uh, Tony Nelson from the FBI. They did all those cases. And, uh, I mean, literally, the Gemini crew and the Westies probably killed 300 people easily, easily. Oh, was that the guy who was supposed to be the hit guy, Mickey Featherstone, I think his name was? Featherstone and Jimmy Coonan. Mickey Featherstone cooperated. Jimmy Coonan was the number two. He did not. And then you had Roy DeMeo, and you had the Gemini twins, Anthony Center and Joey Testa. Uh, you had all the Testa brothers. I mean, the Gemini crew was, was crazy. They were both crazy, out of their minds. That's crazy. So when you went to the DA's office – the Brooklyn DA's office after you retired, what were you specifically working on then? I didn't finish the mob cop case as a detective. I got hired. I came, I, re I retired July 30th of 04 and got hired by the PAL and the DA's office at the same time. I went to SIU, which is Special Investigations Unit in the DA's office. Uh -huh. um, and we continued the mob cop investigation there. And that's where, you know, that's where I was when they were arrested. Um, and the feds ended up coming in. They were time barred uh, on that case. And through good friends of mine, Frank Drew, Eric Stangerby, we reached out to an agent named Timmy Moran out in Vegas. And uh, he was the one that set up the drug deal with a cooperating witness they had on the street. And once they made that buy with Cara Kappa and Epolito, uh, they weren't time bought anymore. And right. the feds came in and were able to charge him with, I think it was 79, 79 counts on the indictment, and they were convicted on all 79. But they both, uh, Ippolito and Cara Kappa both died in prison, correct? Yes, yes they both died in prison. So they, they never... Uh, they were given... 80 years plus or whatever, who got 100 years plus. It's it's crazy when you think when you, you, you've been a cop, you know how the police department works, that something like that could have actually happened. It's it's pretty amazing, you know? You know, they, uh, they were respected by a lot of guys. And at the beginning, uh, a lot of people, you know, 
didn't care for me very much because, <laughs> because of it. But it's a long story on that I can't talk about on why and how it started. But, uh, you know, it it took a lot of soul searching before I did. And uh, if I had to do it again, I'd do it tomorrow. You know, they always say that no one uh, hates a dirty cop more than a good cop, you know, because – a you know, dirty cop makes everyone look bad, you know. Listen, nobody's perfect, and everybody there's a gray area everywhere. But you're talking fourteen homicides, <laughs> you know. Right, exactly. I mean, still fourteen homicides. Fourteen homicides. Lieutenant Peter Prenzo, thank you so much for the ten dollars super chat. Hello, Colleen Francois, Bobby Geis, Christopher Strom. He says Tommy's knowledge is unsurpassed. As a SME. <laughs> my hero, Chris. He was my boss in Intel. And him and uh, Jack Cucci, Ten O'Brien, Chief Oates, they didn't come from McCool, Tartaglia, everybody. I was very, very lucky. Very lucky. Aviation 90Z Patriot, uh, Robert123, Diane B. I mean, Tommy Dade seems to have like an unending memory. He just can. Uh, Spit out these facts. You got like a yeah, photographic brain surgery that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people don't know, and I talked to you a, a bunch of times. You're a little bit banged up right now, both from boxing and 9 11, you know? So, uh, well, my 10th surgery and 9 11 tapped me on the shoulder about five years ago. But, uh, thank God, you know, with everything I've been doing and the way 9 11 has been treating me, you know, the doctors and everybody uh i feel i feel good thank god i feel you know better than i have in a long time yeah i mean you know it's coming up on the 20 year anniversary which is uh i mean it seems a long time ago to me you know but uh it, it is my mom died my mom was dying during that period and she died the morning i came home on the 16th you know so that week is always a very it's just a very melancholy melancholy week you know yeah, you know, I I went. I used to teach at a college, and I um, would take the kids from the college to the nine eleven memorial, and they would all get all excited when they would see my name, you know, listed as one of the responders. You know, they'd pull it up in that little computer there. Yes, and it's a very tough. Uh, if you were a responder, it's a very tough place to visit. It really is. You know, it is. It's it's. Uh, that was such a sad, sad, sad time. It really was, and I think. Uh, you know, that and then what we just all went through this last year, you know, uh, you know, you never thought the world would be any different with the barriers up and everything after 9-11, so many things changed. And now, you know, with this corona stuff and the people that died and people got sick and the masks and everything else, it's like, I, I, I don't know, there's, uh, it's like I don't really relate to this world the way it is today, you know. Yeah, you know, I was just talking about that. You, I, It's March, March, it's been a year. It's been a year yeah, that we've sort yeah. of been locked down yeah. with this, you know. I was at the Spine Center, Columbia University, and the guy's got a mask on, the doctor, and he's checking my spine, and uh, I need surgery that I can't have. And uh, he's wiping his equipment off, and he wouldn't shake my hand. And I'm like, what's, go what's going on here? It's just as it started. It's just as people started walking around with masks on, you know. Yeah. Pat Russo, thank you so much. New York City Cops and Kids Boxing. That is the best. For the four ninety nine Super Chat. He's, he's a gem. But heroes, heroes like you guys, and not just being cop heroes, but heroes to the community, 
Sometimes people uh, that are on the other side that don't like cops, they get jealous that cops are given back. When you show the selfishness, selflessness. Me, Patty, uh, and uh, me, Patty, and Gary Stark together. You know, I have a picture of it, and I still have the award. We won the Black Achievement Award from Mullinari for our work in Park Hill. And I thank Patty so much for giving me that opportunity to to run that gym for as long as Park the PAL had it. But Patty's a very humble guy, and uh, people have no clue of you know the generosity and the. Uh, the time and effort that he puts into running. There's three gyms left, the Berry Homes, Park Hill, and Flatbush Gardens. And all amazing gyms, all amazing coaches, and all amazing fighters. And uh, Patty and Dave Sieve uh, are two guys that are very much responsible for that keeping going after the PAL disappeared. You know, when you we've had Patty on the show a bunch of times. And, you know, he, he's got a great sense of humor, but he's a very serious guy, you know. And... Uh, you're right. He's the most generous guy. We're I, I can't tell the whole story, but suffice it to say, he pulled a five thousand dollar check out of his wallet to hand in to uh, contribute to something. And the person that he was handed it to said, "No, no, no. We'll t you know we don't want your money." He was there for me through a lot of hard times, and I'll never forget it. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, what next? What next in the life of Tommy Dades? Uh what next? Just trying to stay. Just trying to stay healthy. Uh, yeah. Just getting ready to move. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm excited about that. And uh, I'm just trying to stay healthy. My my kids are doing really good. You know, uh, I, I live through their eyes. And thank God I was blessed with two beautiful children. And, uh, you know, that that's it. And just uh, I keep in touch with as many people as I can. I miss the job. I miss boxing. I miss... I miss a lot, but what I miss don't really exist. I mean, the boxing's still there, but not the same, but it doesn't exist anymore. The job that I remember don't exist anymore. Tommy, Sean Gelfand said, one of the best ever. Love you, Tommy. Tell him I love him. We just yeah. texted him not long ago. What a boss he was. They didn't come no was, is, was his dad a chief? Elson you know, Gelfand? Was that his father? I'm not even sure. Because if he was, he never he never acted like it. Yeah. Sean is the best. Sean, and what a regular guy. What a regular guy. Dave Siev, he was a lieutenant, right? And he was involved Dave in the C. boxing. Dave C was the – there were the two, the two teams, and Dave was the team that I was on, you know, with Ricky Frazier and uh, Tommy Kadad and, uh, and uh, a bunch of other guys. Uh, and we trained at a Starrett City Boxing Club and had some great – we fought – we fought on national TV uh, – in the tough man contest, it was, you know, what, you know, it's, it's sad because it was late August. I think it was August 28th of 01. And it was at uh, Hammerstein Ballroom. And we fought, it was uh, 13 fights. So it ended up six and six and there was a tiebreaker. And uh, there were more fights in the stands than there were in the ring. The better fights were in the stands. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, as I was fighting, I see guys fist fighting like over my head. And uh, we had a great time, but it was like a week and a half before 9-11. And you know how the place was packed, the Amistine Ballroom. But it was on national TV. It was the real tough man contest. So FDNY fought the NYPD team. And we had a ball. And there was a mutual respect on both ends. I can't even tell you how much respect I have for the fire department, too. You never lost to a fireman, did you? 
Yes, I did. <laughs> I, had, I fought them. I fought FDNY twice. I lost once. I won once. Oh, man. That's all right. You, you, you have to be in it to win it. You were in it, right? As long as you're in it. As long as you're in it, don't quit. You know, that's what it's all right. right. There's, honor, there's honor in just being in it, right? You got to have heart. That's all. Tommy, Tommy, one more story that I loved, and I hope you don't mind telling it. Tell the story about going into the social club and talking to the the wise guys about the, 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 hit, the hit they put on you. I uh, at the same time, around the same time that uh, the thing happened with John Papa, getting Christmas cards in the mail, and uh, they're erasing certain words, and it says uh, there's a guy standing with a machine gun, and you got uh, me and my then wife and my two children lined up getting machine gun to that, you know, Merry Christmas. And we just locked up a bunch of guys, 40 guys, and they were being housed at MDC in Brooklyn. And uh, they were mailing it from MDC. And it kept getting these these cards. So I mentioned it to Matt Tormey, and he brings in a, a guy from Major Case, this guy Jerry Donnelly, and they send the envelopes to Quantico. And this is the only time, first time I've had any experience with DNA. You could ask me a million questions. I'm not a computer <laughs> guy. I don't know nothing about any of that stuff. And uh, the, the DNA, what they did was they swabbed everybody that we locked up. And one of the guys that we locked up licked the envelope. <laughs> and it comes back to him. But before I find that out, because he ends up cooperating anyway. And, uh, you know, me and him, we talk it out. We have no beef with each other. And I just said to myself, let me go up to Bath Avenue with a sergeant from OSID. And uh, I said, let me see, you know, if I could talk to somebody, you know, man to man. So before I got out of the car, I let him see my, 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 my gun and shield, you know, putting it away, locking the doors, securing it. And I'm there on personal business. And he's leaning back on a bar stool. And he was a soldier at the time. He ended up being the acting boss of the Lucchese family for a while. Um, but he was a soldier at the time, may have been a captain. And I said, listen, don't acknowledge me. I'm not asking you to acknowledge me. I said, I'm just asking, you want to kill me, kill me. You know, you want to threaten me, threaten me. And, uh, you know, I said, I'm just asking you to leave my wife and my, my kids out of this, my then wife and my kids out of this. And uh, me and the sergeant are standing there, and he basically looks at me, and his answer wasn't very, wasn't very gracious. It wasn't what you wanted. What <laughs> I wanted to hear. And uh, I guess just me and the sergeant know what happened after that, you know. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a life-learning lesson for him for the future. Oh, that was good. That's a great story, you know. I could see that could be a scene in a movie too. Oh, percent. It was. It was uh, to, this day, to this day, I always I laugh about it. You know, it's a great story, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have any last words? We've been at like a, an hour and six minutes here. Listen, I I uh, am honored that you picked me to be on the show. Um, I'm honored for everybody that watched. I hope people enjoyed some of the stories. Uh, you know, half the guys you got on there, I know and uh, care very much about, and. Uh, I wish everybody just to be safe, healthy, and uh, be careful out there if you're still on a job. And uh, just keep up the good work. 
you know, and uh, thank you so much for the police department, the, 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 the DEA, the FBI, the Eastern District, the Brooklyn DA's office, for the PAL, for giving me so much to remember by and so much to be proud of and never thought I'd accomplish an eighth of what I did in my lifetime. Well, Tommy, I'm so happy that you agreed to come on the show. You're a real great, great American hero. And one of the things that I always say all the time, you can almost add nauseam, is that one of the greatest things I like about doing this show is the superstar cops I get to meet. You know, and we've interviewed some of the greatest cops on this job. Uh, Mikey Heinrichs, you know, yeah. Chief Chief Louis Anamone, Peter yeah. Pranzo. Anamone, great, Peter Pranzo, you know. Um, I always get a, uh, I always get a blank when I'm trying to think of Tommy Kennedy, a superstar from the three two. You know, um, some of these three uh, zero. I'm trying to think uh, Vic Hollyfield from the three zero. Great cops. So, these guys were like amazing cops, and it's almost like uh, a hall of fame. You know, if I, I wish I could have a hall of fame behind me. I'll put it on your wall because your wall's empty it right was, now. It was something I want to sound like like a cliche or, or sound stupid, but. Um, there was a thing on Blue Bloods once, and uh, and and it stuck in my head. The show I happened to like it, and uh, the the younger kid, the, the not Danny, but the brother. I, actually, I was on the set. Stevie Gardell was a sergeant on the movie set. I got a, a picture with Danny, but uh, the younger brother, and he's talking to a girl, and she's talking about how being a cop isn't what it's you know like it's a garbage job or whatever. And he reminded her that, you know, he's been around, you know, his family's been around all kinds of royalty and politicians and everything. And it's so funny how they just want to hear the stories that the cop has to tell. And the rest of the, everyone else's stories really, really don't stand up to anything. You know, they, so, they pale, right. They pale compared to the stories. This, this law enforcement is a job. It's a calling. And uh, when you retire, no matter what kind of job you get or how much money you make, It'll never replace the camaraderie and the feeling that you have. You know, you had 77 precincts in New York and uh, besides the other places, OCCB and all of that. So there was always a place to walk into, you know, where you felt you were at home. And if you needed help, you had somebody there to take you back. Absolutely. You know, I remember the, uh, the retiring Chief Luongo. Jimmy Luongo. Luongo, great guy. He said, he said something one time that made just so much sense, and I immediately knew what he was talking about. It was a retirement party, and he looked around the room, and he looked he looked at me, and he said, because not many people could walk into this room. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. That's the truth. Like I said, Joe Coffey, I told you, he, he retired, and his famous saying was, thank you to the front seat and the, of the greatest show on earth. And that's that's uh, absolutely, and that's that's been repeated now a million times. Yes, you know, hundred percent. Bill, thank you so much, Tommy. You're the man. I've just promised me you'll come back again, and uh, you know, it's a pleasure. It's therapy for me. Bring, bring, bring Sammy the bull with you. We'll I'm talk to Sammy. <laughs> with me. Probably watching. I sent him the link. That's right. So, all you people out there, you police off the cuff fans, real crime stories. You just witnessed some of the greatest stories you'll ever hear with Tommy Dades. I want to thank Tommy Dades for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Tommy. You so much. Every, everyone, good night from Police Off the Cuff right. After Hours.